Hello, and welcome to my podcast, You Are Your Uterus. This is episode two, called Fucking Aristotle. And my name is Dr. Victoria Della Torre. And as I said, this is a brand new podcast, and this is the second episode. In the first episode, I made clear that there are two main goals in this podcast for me. The first is that I'm a strong believer in history as the mechanism by which you can understand your present society. And when some event happens, when there is an issue that concerns women, I cannot not think about it in something other than historic terms. And so I'm hoping by illuminating what this history is, women especially, but everyone in Western society will understand why the culture exists as it does today. And the second goal I was hoping to achieve is that I think that the way history is taught in public schools uh, leaves out all of the most important things. And that's not through no fault of the teachers who are all heroes. It's very much tied to textbooks and textbook selection and what boards of supervisors and school boards want to see in their textbooks. And I often found it heartwarming and also maddening that when I would get a group of freshmen, they hadn't heard even the most basic parts of the story of women in America. And I hope to rectify that. Now, you're asking, why is it that I am going all the way back to the Greeks with a an episode entitled fucking Aristotle? Well, I call it fucking Aristotle because that term spontaneously emerged from my mouth uh, several years ago when I was providing some historical cons consultation to a series of plays that were being performed in San Diego. And although they were set in modern times and used loosely based on the story of, believe it or not, Henry VIII and his daughter Elizabeth, it was really a lot about gender and the understanding of women that prevailed at that time and, of course, in many ways still prevails. So when one of the producers or the cast members kept asking me, well, where did all, why did they think this about women? Why, where did they get all this? And my answer was fucking Aristotle. And then I think I might've added and the doctrines of the Christian church, but that's going to be my next episode. Today we're focusing on the Greeks because it is from the Greeks that we derive a key foundation of the gender construct that exists in modern society. And it's a construct that, based on the title of my podcast, is based on a uterus and menstruation and the rest of the functions associated with female biology. The roots of Western civilization are Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian, and our culture's foundations are built on the ideologies of these civilizations. And in many respects, when you go back and read uh, material, primary sources from these periods, you will find so much that seems familiar. I want to quick mention what do I mean when I say primary source? Well, historians divide sources up into two different kinds, primary and secondary. Primary sources are things like the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, uh, the writings of Aristotle. Those are sources that are from the period themselves by that specific historic figure. Secondary sources are articles, books, plays, any kind of interpretation that is based on those primary sources. You can't do history without primary sources. Sometimes they're a little kind of hard to understand or awkward, but just even cutting it down to its basics, you really can see how much our culture has been shaped by the Greeks, the Romans, and the Judeo-Christian tradition. Okay, now, what I do with these episodes, I want to start off by telling you what I want the key takeaway to be from this episode. And in this episode... 
the basic concepts about the nature of women and how her biology affects her humanity begins with the Greeks. We have written sources that go back to the 8th century BCE, and Aristotle is from the 4th century BCE, and he focuses on defining women as inferior because of their biology, and thus that inferiority makes her a lesser human and far less able to contribute anything to society. Now, Aristotle is actually one of the later sources I'm going to cover today. And the reason why I titled the episode after him is because of how influential he was on subsequent scientists and philosophers, great Roman physician Galen, whether it's medieval physicians, you see so much of what he said repeated almost verbatim. And so his influence goes far and wide. But before we get to Aristotle in the fourth century, we're going to go further back. We're going to go to the eighth and seventh century BCE. Now, what does BCE mean? It refers to before the common era. We also use the term BC for before Christ as a way to date history before the birth of Christ. The phrase AD, Anos Domini, means the year of our Lord, which is why a more neutral way to refer to AD is to say CE, the common era. I also want to point out that when I say the 7th century BCE, I'm talking about the 600s BCE. The name of the century always refers to the lesser number, the same way that the 20th century was the 1900s and the 21st century is the 2000s. Now, during the period, the 8th and the 7th century, a lot of what we know about the Greeks was finally codified or put into a written form. A lot of you may be familiar with the stories, the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer. Well, we know they were written down sometime in the 7th century BCE. But we know that they were being sung and told throughout the Near East for centuries before that. During the 7th century, in addition to Homer being written down, we have uh, several poets who wrote about life, the cosmos, the role of man. Two of these sources are, one is a poet named Hesiod, another poet slash thinker named Simonides. Hesiod goes back to the 8th and 7th centuries. And when you hear the word poet and you're talking about uh, an ancient thinker or an ancient writer that we're familiar with, remember that poetry deals with all aspects of life. In fact, uh, last episode I quoted Leonardo Bruni about the importance of history, but when he was going through the other subjects of the humanistic studies, those subjects of the most important to human beings, he put poetry very high up because poetry deals with everything. Life, death, love, rejection, God, pain, glory, all of human life is expressed by poets. So when I talk about Hesiod, I'm talking about these poems in which the values of the Greeks were codified. And in two works, the Theogony and a poem entitled Works and Days, Hesiod twice tells the story of the creation of woman. And in this creation story, you're going to find many similarities to the story of Eve in the Garden of Eden, if you are familiar with that. In addition, you might have heard this story before because it is the story of a woman named Pandora. And when we talk next time and as I'm going through the story of Pandora, I want you to listen for similarities to that story of Eve, which many people are familiar with. Okay, what is similar with Eve and Pandora? Well, Pandora... Uh, her appearance ends man li man's living in a golden age, uh, an age of plenty. And Pandora, the woman, is the source of evil. She brings evil to the world and she is a scourge to men. So let's go to the theogony and ask this question. 
why was Pandora created? If man was having this great life and living in a golden age and had plenty, why oh why would the gods, and in this case Zeus, create women? Well, women were created as a punishment for the fact that men had been given fire by the Titan Prometheus. Might be another story you're familiar with. Because fire brings you closer to living like a god, if you think about before fire and after fire, how much different life is, how much more elevated life is, how much more is possible. It's, it's a form of what I consider to be the fruit of the tree of knowledge that is more familiar to many of us because it is the story of the Garden of Eden. And Eve eats the forbidden fruit and their eyes are opened. Uh, and Satan in the form of the serpent had told her, oh, you're going to have knowledge just like a God does. Well, this very similar is a much earlier story that goes back 700 years before uh, the Old Testament. And in it, we are seeing that the gift of fire and the role that fire plays in a man's life needs to be punished. Men can't like get that high up. So Zeus sets up a terrible punishment. And as he says to Prometheus, when uh, he, is, he is yelling at him for giving mankind fire, he says to Prometheus very clearly, you who surpass all others in planning, you rejoice in your theft of my fire and in having deceived me. Being the cause of great pain to yourself and men in the future, I shall give them in payment of fire an evil which all shall take to their hearts with delight, an evil to love and embrace. So Zeus is punishing humans for having this great addition to civilization fire because it makes him smarter and better and closer to a god and so he has to be punished so he calls all the gods together and he says okay hephaestus you mold this creature out of clay and he specifically tells him i want you to mold her out of clay in quote an Im image resembling a virgin demure he tells Athena to dress her. He tells that the graces bring beautiful necklaces. Aphrodite gives this woman charm and, quote, makes her an object of pain, painful love, and exhausting desire. That is, again, when I talk to you about Eve next time, so similar. So similar that women are, in fact, a pain for men. And we cause them to lust and love us, which only brings them pain. And after the gods had created this creature, she was called Pandora, which means the gift of all, because all the gods on Olympus gave her a gift to this, quote, plague of men. And again, think about Eve and what have you ever heard about Eve? And when you see Eve used in an advertisement, always with an apple in her hand, what is being conveyed to you? So again, Pandora comes way before Eve. So Pandora is sent to earth to the tribes of men who had previously lived on earth free and apart from evils and without labor and free from painful diseases. But Pandora comes with a jar and in that jar, after she lifts the lid, the woman brings all of the evils, painful, burdensome labor, dreadful diseases that cause death. She scatters them everywhere. And again, she is devised as an anguishing misery for men. The only thing she brought that remained trapped in her jar was hope. Now, think about what we're seeing there. Women are, are the source of evil. Women are a punishment. Women are beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are deceitful and will take advantage of you. And so that creation story 
you know, it becomes like, I guess, the story of Eve for modern people, wherein everybody knows that story. It's told over and over again. He repeats it in two different poems. So it's an important foundational source for understanding how the Greeks thought about women. I also want you to look too at Homer. Many of you may have heard of Homer. He's the writer of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And just around the same time that Hesiod is writing these poems about the creation of the cosmos, the creation of women, a life on earth for men, you also have the Iliad and the Odyssey being codified or written down. Now, scholars have told us that for centuries before the actual writing down of those stories, the Iliad and the Odyssey were well known. They were sung, they were told all through the Near East and the Eastern Mediterranean. I'm just going to give a few quick examples of this from this these two stories that were written down somewhere in the middle of the 8th century. Both those stories, the Iliad, but and the Odyssey, because the Odyssey is the second story and is the story of one of the great heroes of the war, his journey home. His name is Odysseus. But the first book, the Iliad, although it begins in the ninth year of the Ten-Year War, is about the Trojan War. And let's just look real quick at how this devastating 10-year-long war came about. Well, it all comes about from women, of course. The story goes that there is a wedding in Olympus and all the gods and goddesses are there. And the goddess of discord, please take note, a goddess of discord or chaos or anarchy or tension, discord, you know, she's there just to create antagonism between people. Well, she did a great job because she had a beautiful golden apple and a tag on it that said to the fairest and she threw it into the party. Immediately, three main goddesses of Olympus, Hera, Zeus's wife, Athena, Zeus's daughter, who sprang from his head, and Aphrodite, the goddess of love, uh, all say, oh, well, it has to mean me. It has to mean me. And so what are you going to do? Well, Zeus was smart enough to say, I am not getting in the middle of this. No way, no how. So they go and find for lack of a better word, and I'm sure there's going to be some serious scholars who will just not like this, but they go and find a chump, this poor young shepherd boy named Paris. And each of the goddesses promises Paris something wonderful in order to persuade him slash bribe him to pick her as the one who is the true recipient of the apple. Well, Hera promises him great political authority and political power and fame. Athena promises him that he will be a great warrior and, and powerful in one of the most noble and important pursuits of men, war. Aphrodite promises Paris the most beautiful woman in the world. Now, if you're a young guy, I don't know, Paris is what, 17, 19, 20 maybe, which of those three are you going to pick? Well, ding, 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 you selected correctly. He went right for Helen of Troy. Now, Helen of Troy was actually Helen of the Greeks before this. She was the wife of a Greek king. And there is some dispute as to whether Helen was kidnapped or she went willingly with Paris. You decide if you want. Um... I think the kidnapped story is a good one because that way it's not her fault. But the fact that she went willingly and nowhere in the story that I know of did she try to get away. Um, she goes from being Helen, a Greek, to Helen of Troy. And the Iliad and the Odyssey are both filled with incredible humans, semi-demigods, goddesses, who all represent different aspects of womanhood that you can think of. We have a clear setup in the Odyssey where 
Odysseus's wife Penelope is the perfect example of the chaste wife. She remains true to him for 20 years and will not allow any of the suitors who want to marry her to in fact marry her. That's contrasted with adulteresses in the story and women who are witches who put spells on men. So when you look at it from the perspective of what is this 8th and 7th century telling us the Greeks thought of women, it's very clear. Now, the last of our later sources before I get to Aristotle is the 6th century BCE, a poem on women written by Simonides. And Simonides's poem is really uh, important and so telling because in it, he compares women to every different kind of animal to tell you how to pick the right kind of white. So Simonides, who is a poet slash philosopher, 7th, late 6th century, they compare women to all of these different animals with the exception of one, all have horrible traits. And these are the kind of women you have to avoid. So he begins discussing women and says, from the beginning, the God made the mind of woman a thing apart. One he made from the long haired sow while she wallows in the mud and rolls about on the ground. Everything at home lies in a mess. Well, clearly he's telling you this is not the kind of woman you want to end up with as your wife. Um, she's just going to wallow around and eat all your food. And moreover, as he goes on, she doesn't take baths, but sits about in the shit in dirty clothes and gets fatter and fatter. Wow. Wow. I don't know about you, but I don't know very many women like that, but I know a lot of stereotypes that reiterate that kind of perspective. Simonides goes on. The God made another woman from the evil fox. This woman is crafty in all matters. She doesn't miss a thing. Bad or good, the things she says are sometimes good and just as often bad. Her mood is constantly shifting. So a fox, of course. Fox are crafty. They figure out a way to get what they want. We have all sorts of expressions about foxes in the hen house, etc., the next woman was made from a dog, nimble, a bitch like its mother. Now, let's just think about this for a minute. Everybody knows that bitch technically does mean a female dog. But we also know it is the one of the favorite insults for women. What a bitch, what a bitch. So I don't know if that one has ever gone out of style, but... I think it's important to note that the idea of women as female dogs or bitches or bitches in heat goes all the way back to the Greeks. She wants to be in on everything that's said or done, scampering about and nosing into everything. She yaps it out even if there's no one to listen. Her husband can't stop her with threats, nor if he flies into a rage and knocks her teeth out with a rock. Not if he speaks to her sweetly when they happen to be sitting among friends. No, she stubbornly maintains her unmanageable ways. Right there, we have a lot of really awful kind of images. First of all, again, a dog is like following him around, wants to know what's going on, wants to be involved. And her husband can't get rid of her even when she knocks her teeth out with a rock. And the word unmanageable is used, which to me, again, goes right to this issue of women must be controlled. Their innate nature, as well as the science of Aristotle, who we'll talk about in a minute, makes it so that you have to manage women. If you don't manage them, you're going to end up with one of these, a bitch. Okay. Then um, he goes on to talk about a woman who is from the stumbling and obstinate donkey, who only with difficulty and with the use of threats is compelled to agree to the perfectly acceptable things she had resisted. Okay, 
Otherwise, in a corner of the house, she sits munching away all night long and all day long as she sits munching at the hearth. Even so, she'll welcome any male friend. Well, that again is not a great kind of woman. This is the typical woman. Haven't you ever heard that expression? Oh, a woman is entitled to change her mind or women's minds are as changeable as the wind. It's this idea that women are changeable and the donkey is the animal who's just going to be obstinate to be obstinate. And, and even if a man tries to reason with her, she's not going to change her mind. When she does change her mind, it's going to be with real resistance. You're going to have to really work at it to get her to understand what it is you're trying to talk about. And again, we always have that image of the woman eating her way through a man's stores and the idea that women are going to bankrupt men by eating all their food. The other woman that we notice is, get ready for it, another kind of woman is the wretched, miserable tribe that comes from the weasel. As far as she is concerned, there's nothing lovely or pleasant or delightful or desirable in her. She's wild over lovemaking in bed, but her husband wants to vomit when he comes near her. She's always stealing and making trouble for the neighbors, and she often filches the sacrificial offerings from the altar. Wow, that's... That's like everything bad you can possibly be. There's nothing good enough. She's always sour. Uh, again, these are such familiar tropes and stereotypes about women. And she's always going to be making trouble. And in this case, she's so bad, she'll even steal the food and wine and sacrifices that are at the various pagan altars. Another woman is born of the delicate, long-maned mare who maneuvers her way around the slavish and troublesome housework and wouldn't put a finger to the mill or so much as lift the sieve or sweep the dirt out of the house or go into the dirt, into the kitchen for fear she'll get dirty. She sometimes anoints herself with fragrant oils and takes up to two baths a day. She always wears her hair long and flowering in deep richness highlighted with flowers. And so such a woman is a thing of beauty for others to look upon, but she's still only a burden to her husband. And again, what do you recognize there? Think of a beautiful horse galloping through the countryside, the hair on its mane blowing in the wind. Well, what he's saying here is these beautiful women know how to manipulate their way around the world so that they don't have to do anything. I'm too pretty to have to do housework. I'm too important. Look at my beautiful hair. Look at how good I smell. Look at how you know, again, everything perfect on the outside like Pandora, but on the inside, all she really cares about is getting out of any kind of work. Now, another animal that a woman is from is the monkey. In this case, Zeus has outdone himself in giving husbands the worst kind of evil. She has the ugliest face imaginable, and such a woman is the laughing stock throughout the town for everyone. Her body moves awkwardly all the way up to its short neck. She hardly has an ass, and her legs are skinny. What a poor wretch is the husband who has to put his arms around such a mess. Like a monkey, she knows all kinds of tricks and routines, and she doesn't mind being laughed at. Not that there's anything that she can do well. No, it's this that concerns and occupies her all day long. How can she accomplish the greatest degree of harm? Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Well, we know that one of the great Greeks values is physical beauty. And so the idea that um, you would look like a monkey and have this misshapen form and it just signifies all of the craftiness and dirtiness uh, we think of monkeys. Now, what is the only animal that is praiseworthy? What is the only woman that is praiseworthy is the one that is compared to a bee. 
Why the B? Well, think about it. B is really the best worker. It's industrious. It works all day. That's its whole life. And it is asexual in its reproduction. So a virtuous wife not only is hardworking and industrious and focused only on the home and her husband, she also is important as the one who's the bee because she doesn't act like she's interested in sex. The problem with a woman who's too interested in sex is that it might make her commit adultery and then her husband becomes the laughingstock of his neighbors because he becomes a cuckold. Some scholars say that the bee also represents in many ways the desire for frigidity in that the bee wife, because she's so industrious and so focused on the household and not interested in sex, she's not going to be constantly bothering her husband to have sex with her. And as you're going to see when we get to Aristotle, semen was considered a precious substance. And Aristotle and other physicians and philosophers admonish men to not spill their seed wantonly or wastefully. Okay, and so you also want to keep women who are like the bee because when she has children, she's only going to have a few. In many ways, it's like a, a little bit of like birth control, but ultimately it is the industriousness, the fact that the bee allows the husband and the household to flourish and prosper under her care. Those are the words directly from Simonides. And she'll grow old cherishing her husband. She'll give him a lovely, distinguished group of children. And she's graceful and she takes pleasure in sitting among other women and engaging in the activities that are important for women to engage in. Okay. So all these different animals reflect very much all of the negative aspects of a woman's nature. And we still use those expressions. And one of the most prevalent ones I recently heard in the Enchanted Tiki Room in Disneyland. Now, some of you may know that Disneyland has like revamped some of their rides to not be so antiquated in the viewpoints that the attractions are presenting. I think Pirates of the Caribbean has undergone several refreshers so that you don't have such a negative stereotype of women. And my understanding was that the Tiki Room was going to go through that too, but it did not. My daughter and I were sitting there and the lights go out and the four birds come out and the main uh, master of ceremonies, if you will, is a parrot named, I can't remember his name, but he's Mexican. And the accent that they use and the words, the slang that they put in this bird's mouth is offensive beyond belief. You just can't believe that they're still doing this. The other three birds, for some reason, and I guess I'm going to have to do some research to figure this out, are an Irishman, a Frenchman and a German. And the accents that they have for those birds, they're caricatures. Likewise, if I was French or Irish or German, I might be a little insulted. So they begin singing and then the master of ceremonies comes back to talk to all the other birds. And when the three other birds begin all talking at the same rhyme, he says to them, oh, to quiet down, you're sounding like a bunch of old hens. And I snapped my head and looked at my daughter and we both had our jaws on the floor because it's like, seriously, in the tiki room, you're going to refer to women as a bunch of old hens that these men are resembling a bunch of clucking women. Wow. I also was um, really surprised when they another number was starting and they lower this really cool like chandelier thing. And it's all, I think, cockatoos or yeah, cockatoos, the white birds. And of course, the French bird whistles, catcalls. And these birds have like 
feathers not just on them but as part of the decor on the chandelier and it immediately made me think of like vegas showgirl or stripper and this song was all sung by this group of of these beautiful white birds that resembled I don't know, strippers or Vegas showgirls. So there you have it. The comparison to animals is alive and well. Thinking back on the mare, have you ever heard of a woman described as, oh yeah, she's a thoroughbred? I've heard women described that way, as though they're like this incredibly expensive racehorse. And of course, nothing surpasses bitch for comparisons to animals. Okay, now... The final Greek writer we're going to talk about is finally fucking Aristotle. Now, why is Aristotle so important? Well, because Aristotle not only was super influential in the subsequent centuries in the West, but he is the one that created this idea of woman as the other. Or in other words, he didn't create it. He spelled it out and explained it scientifically. Women are not men, were the other. And in fact, he refers to women as deformed men. Why? Because they don't have testes, an organ that elongates, and semen. Now, Aristotle believed that women had a discharge menstruation, but he considered that menstrual blood to be way inferior to semen. And the menstrual discharge is semen though an Im- in an impure condition. And because women have this, this vessel, this uterus, she's also less important in procreation. She doesn't contribute it as much. It is the man with his life-giving semen, his elongated organ, and his more important contribution to procreation that makes it so that women are always going to be seen as lesser. It's like the natural reaction of them is, well, because you don't have these things and because you're really not contributing a whole lot. But even when people realized that women's contribution to procreation was far more than what Aristotle said, you know, it's ingrained in society that women are the other. It's everything's always measured by male as the standard. And you can see that in so many different facets of life. One off the top of my head that, that comes to mind is drug testing. Throughout the 20th century, it took decades before the big pharmaceutical companies tested drugs on women. Because, well, women can get pregnant, so we don't know what the drug is going to do to them. Well, but women get sick and women have heart attacks and women get cancer and all these other diseases. But again, male is the standard. And the idea that it is the male body that is more beautiful is central to Greek culture. So everything about women is such that we are the other. Our, our internal organs never develop into male organs. So in, in many ways, Aristotle really codified that idea of woman as the other. But he also alludes, I think, in some respects to the idea of opposites. And the reason I bring up this issue of, of opposites is because if you go play a game of opposites with anyone of any age, And, you know, you shout out a word and you say hot. Oh, the opposite is cold. You say light. Oh, the opposite is dark. You say hard. Oh, the opposite is soft. You say man and a lot of people will say woman. And if they do, you can thank the thousands of years of anti-female literature that has created this idea that women are inherently because of their biology, inferior. Now, I also think that the idea that women are opposite allows for seeing, again, women as lesser. The other opposite that I find interesting when you throw out terms for people is if you say dog, see how many people say cat. Because just like man and woman, cats are not opposites to dogs. That just doesn't fit. 
Okay. Aristotle is so, so influential and it's almost verbatim. Subsequent writers about the female body continue to reiterate and paraphrase him. Uh, a very famous Roman court physician named Galen, who again becomes popular throughout the Middle Ages and, you know, uh, throughout the time that Western civilization is is getting these entrenched ideas about women, he really popularizes Aristotle and in many ways just kind of explains him. Okay, so he starts out by saying, just as mankind is the most perfect of all animals, so within mankind, the man is more perfect than the woman. And he goes on to give this very long explanation about heat and cold that he relies on Aristotle for, but it gets too complicated. I'm going to skip it. It's the idea that women are less perfect than men. Her workmanship is more in important. And he uses another animal analogy to bring the point home. In fact, Galen writes in the second century CE, just as the mole has imperfect eyes, though certainly not so imperfect as they are in those animals that do not have any trace of them at all, so too the woman is less perfect than the man in respect to the generative parts. For the parts were formed within her when she was still a fetus, but could not, because of this defect in her, emerge and project on the outside. And this is, makes the animal a being that is formed less perfect than the one that is complete in all respects. Wow. And the only thing that he notes in positive with a question mark way is that the you ought not to think that the creator would purposely make half the whole race imperfect as it were mutilated unless there was to be some great advantage in such a mutilation wow okay so um we're mutilated as fetuses because we do not develop male organs but the creator knew what it, he she it was doing because our mutilation serves the purpose of procreation Okay, wow, thank you. Now, the other issue that you're going to see here, and that is going to be something that gets repeated over and over and over again, and is such a prevalent force in our society, has to do with menstruation, which of course is one of the functions of the uterus. Again, the ancients always talked about the idea that women have imperfect semen and a hollow instrument to receive the perfect semen and that everything in the male is the opposite of what is in the female. The male member has to be elongated and that semen itself has to be thick, abundant, and warm and the woman has this to catch this perfect semen. And so they will talk at length about menstruation constantly and you have to ask well what exactly were they saying well you know what you're going to know a lot of it because people keep saying this okay one of the most often repeated issues about menstruation has to do with the menstrual blood and aristotle talks about this and it is picked up by the man i just referenced you to galen and another doctor slash philosopher who i'm going to quote in a minute but here is the basic thought about menstruation a menstruating woman could make a clean mirror bloody dark like a cloud because the menstrual blood passes through her eyes to the surface of a mirror and um Aristotle, for some reason, also thought that women had fewer teeth than men, and that kind of error prejudices with his idea about women. No less an authority of, than Pliny the Elder, Roman authority on natural history, which was another word for science, again, reiterates a lot of what Aristotle writes and basically perpetuates ideas that certainly were, were well known to the Hebrew community of the ancient world. 
So what happens with menstrual blood? Contact with it turns new wine sour. Crops touched by it become barren. Grafts die. Seeds in gardens are dried up. The fruit of trees falls off. The bright surface of mirrors in which it is merely reflected is dimmed. The edge of steel and the gleam of ivory are dull. Hives of bees die. Even bronze and iron are at once seized by rust, and a horrible smell fills the air. To taste it drives dogs mad and infects their bites with an incurable poison. Wow. Okay. Now, again, think about what you see when you see ads for menstruation. What, what, what do you see? Well, you see the ideas that it's something that has to be hidden. They make tampons in all sorts of ways so that they don't look like tampons. So if you ever spill the contents of your purse or a man is going through your purse, he won't buy, be horrified by the sight of a tampon. I remember there was, a, there was a famous commercial, I think it was back in the 70s, where this one brand of tampons called Persets existed. It did not have an applicator, it's just the tampon itself. And it came with something that looked kind of like a lighter, you know, an old fashioned metal lighter, but it was actually a little storage container for three or four of these Persets. So you could put it in the purse and the ad showed how relieved the woman is when her purse spills open and her tampons are protected and nobody knows that she's menstruating. So it's this idea that, well, you, you don't want to talk about this. Think also about this. I remember an ad several times I've had students do exercises where whether it's the internet or hard copy magazines or newspapers or, or any other reading material, when you run across an ad for a menstrual product, look at it and really ask yourself what it is conveying. And a lot of it has to do with hiding the fact that you have your period. It's this stinky, awful thing. So you want to make sure that your vagina doesn't smell. So you got to spray it or shoot up all sorts of stuff that smells like roses. So one of my favorite ads was the one with the shark. And maybe it's because I'm such a big fan of Shark Week and I've been watching it with my son since he was nine. But the ad is sort of animated in the background and it shows a woman in the foreground. She's a diver and she has fins and a mask on. And then behind her is this huge shark. And it's an ad for a particular tampon. And clearly the takeaway is this. You better use our tampon or Jaws is coming to get you. And I remember someone on the internet sometime during Shark Week asking, are sharks attracted to menstrual blood? Oh boy. Okay. Now, I just wanted to give one last point about how, how influential Aristotle was in terms of the way he thought about women so that even by, you know, 800 years past his time, he was still being quoted and relied on. Many subsequent writers relied on Galen and on Aristotle. And you start to see as the centuries wear on how they take the basics of these ideas and concepts about women to become more strident. So for example, Isidore of Seville, who was a highly educated man who became Archbishop of Seville, he wrote this uh, work called The Etymology, and he was one of these men that was just incredibly well-read about many, many topics. But when it came to men and women, he was very clearly in well within the traditions of the Greeks, the Christians, the Jews, the Romans. This is what he says in his famous 6th century CE work. Man is so named because there is greater force in him than in woman. Hence the word strength, or he is so named because he controls woman. And a woman gets her name from softness, or as it were, softer. And 
ultimately the two sexes are differentiated in the strengths and weaknesses of their bodies. Thus there is greater strength in man and less in women so that she might be forbearing to a man. Right, so we have to be weaker so uh, men want to be with us. And females are seen as the more lustful of the two. What is now called female through the Greek etymology for burning force because of the intensity of her desires. For females are more lustful than males among women as much as among animals. So again, we're just like the animals. It's the woman who is the one who is more lustful. And that idea of women as temptresses, as more lustful, feeds into Western civilization for thousands of years and most notably in the Middle Ages and up to the 18th century where this idea of woman as more lustful makes it easier for her to be seduced by the devil. Just as we talked about earlier with menstruations, he also talks about menstruation, Isidore of Seville, and refers to it as a superfluous blood of women. And they all thought it was timed with the, with the moon. And as he writes, they are also called womanish things, since woman is the only menstruating animal. From contact with this blood, fruits fail to germinate, grapes must go sour, plants dry, trees lose their fruit, metal is corroded with rust, and bronze objects go black. Any dogs which consume it contract rabies. The glue of Bitumen, which resists both metal and water, dissolves spontaneously when polluted with that blood. Okay, that's straight out of Pliny, who was relying on Galen, who was relying on Aristotle. And so there we have it. Aristotle gives us biological facts of menstruation, breasts, procreation, and creates a construct of women which has been upheld by society for thousands of years and arguably still is. It characterizes a woman's body as inherently inferior to a man. And science, I'm using that with air quotes, used menstruation to create and construct a female body that because of its weakness and because of the intense effects on women's emotions due to her menstruation, it means that we must protect her and keep her in a subordinate position in society because otherwise we are not going to be able to have a society that's ordered and calm and disciplined. So women, again, are always going to be seen as inherently inferior. Now, the next time anyone says to you, when you issue an opinion, yell, are strident, are angry, the first thing people like to say, are you on your period? Are you on the rag? No, women get mad. Guess what? All you have to do is turn on the news. You, you'll get mad. Women are allowed to yell and scream. But, of course, it's always going to be tied back somehow to our biology. And, and think of the word hysterical. It's based on the root word for uterus. So the hysteria of women will continue for centuries to be seen as tied to her biology. That's it for this episode. Thank you for joining me on my podcast, You Are Your Uterus, A History, and I invite you to get in touch with me. Please go to my Facebook page, Dr. Victoria Della Torre, and please leave any comments or suggestions that you might have, or feel free to email me at drvdlt at gmail.com. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you next time. This has been a production of the Yali Christina Company.